As the children leave, let me pray for them and for us as we remain hear God's word together. Father, we bless you that you love our children, that their angels always look on your face in heaven. Um, thank you that you care about their hearts, their needs. Um, you care about shepherding them forward into safety and security and knowledge of you. And we pray for them today that they would love one another as you've taught them, that they would learn of you the straight and narrow way that will uh, stand them in good stead for every day of their lives. And we pray for us as we remain and open your word together that you would move our hearts, um, that you would open them to you, and you would do whatever work in us you know needs to happen this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I don't have very many memories of my early childhood, uh, but I do have one strong memory from the time that I was in kindergarten. I remember that every week in kindergarten, we were given free playtime on Friday afternoons, uh, and there were stations set up around the classroom with toys and puzzles and games, and all my friends would spread themselves out around the room to play. But there was just one thing that I wanted to do every week, and it was a little bit antisocial. What I wanted to do every week was to head straight over to the audiobook station and put on headphones and listen to Beauty and the Beast. It's true. Uh, And I remember that it was that story every time, every single week. Uh, And my friends would call me over and say, John, come and play this game with us. You've heard that story before. Um, But I really didn't want to. All I wanted to do was to listen again to Beauty and the Beast. Um, And I'm still pretty much a fan of that story today. I've seen both of the Disney adaptations. They're pretty good. Um, And I guess that I loved that story so much, and that a lot of other people love it too, because at its heart, it's a story about redemption, isn't it? Uh, The beast is saved in that story. Um, He has both a physical deformity and a character deformity. And his character deformity is what causes his physical deformity because he starts off as a handsome prince. But at the beginning of the story, he's cruel and arrogant toward a poor woman at his gates, and she magically turns him into a hideous beast. So he's made to look on the outside like what he really is on the inside, isn't he? And then people are repelled by him, and he ends up alone. But notice in the story that His inside does not change at that point in the story. The suffering and the pain and the loneliness doesn't help him. It just makes him bitter and harsh and angry. So that when he meets Beauty, he kidnaps her and he takes her prisoner and he treats her terribly. He hasn't learned anything. Um, But then as he spends time with Beauty, he finds out that she is just as good and beautiful on the inside as she is on the outside. And he starts to fall in love. And as he loves, truly loves, he gets transformed on the inside until he comes to the point where he decides to let beauty go. And with her, he sacrifices his last chance to break the spell that was cast over him. So we see that that at this point in the story, the inside has now been transformed and made good. But now it doesn't match the outside anymore because the outside is still a hideous beast. So then the final redemption of the story is when beauty comes back to him and breaks the spell over him so that the outside is brought back to match the new inside. It's a really interesting story. 
and it seems to know a whole lot about redemption, how people need it, how it happens in stages, and how the only power to make it happen is love, that suffering by itself doesn't change us. Um, and I think that I knew, even back in kindergarten, that I am the beast in that story. I read it, and I'm the beast. I'm waiting for someone beautiful to come and save me. And it turned out that the someone beautiful was Jesus. And he did for me exactly what beauty did for the beast. He came to me when I was unlovely. He taught me to love him. He transformed me on the inside, which is a process that's still ongoing. And I'm still waiting for the end of the story when I get a new redeemed body to match on the outside what he's been doing on the inside. Jesus is our true beauty. And so as we look at John chapter 4 today, that's what I want to see in this story, that as Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, he comes to her as beauty to the beast, and he transforms her. So um, please find John chapter 4 in your Bibles. John 4, I don't have a page number, so first person to find it can shout out what page it's on. Um, eight, 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 three eights. Uh, John chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 1. So we're going to spend two weeks on this story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a very beloved story. Peter's going to finish it off for us next week. And so this week I want to do something a little bit unusual. Uh, what I want to do is to zoom in on just a single verse of this story, on a single sentence that Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, verse 10. If you found chapter 4, verse 10 says, Jesus said to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That sentence, as we zoom in on it, is really a kind of proposal, and it has three movements. First, if you knew the gift of God. Second, you would ask. And third, he would give you. Three movements. If you knew, you would ask, he would give you. And altogether, it makes for a wonderfully winsome invitation into new life. So I want us to explore those three movements together this morning. First, if you knew the gift of God. <clears throat> so we ask, what is the gift of God? And we know now that the gift of God is salvation. We've been hearing all about it in the Gospel of John so far. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The gift of God is salvation. And it came in the form of a person, in the form of Jesus, God's only son. And so Jesus went around traveling to find people and teach them about this gift of God, precisely because they didn't already know about it. No one knew about it until someone told them about it. So here, during the short conversation with this woman, Jesus makes sure to tell her all about this gift of God. He tells her in verse 14, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then when she brought up the subject of the Messiah, Jesus tells her frankly in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus is telling this woman that there's a gift on the table for her, a gift from God. It has come to her in the form of a person, the Son of God, who is the very man she's talking to, 
And Jesus has come like beauty, full of goodness, to love and redeem the beast, to be himself the one thing that can save the beast. So the gift of God is redemption. It's new life. It's transformation. And do you who sit here this morning listening to these words, do you know this gift of God? Do you know the enormous value of what has been offered to you, what has been set on the table before you? The chance to drink the water of eternal life, to be restored to God's inner circle as a worshiper. If you don't know it, and if you have not yet received this gift, then it is still waiting for you too. So first, if you knew the gift of God, Jesus says, second, you would have asked him. Jesus here tells the woman how she's going to respond to his news. He says, you will ask. And indeed, he's right. It's exactly what she does, uh, how she does respond when she says in verse 15, sir, give me this water. She asks. But by predicting that she's going to ask, Jesus is really deeply honoring this woman, I think. He honors her by implying that this promise is for her, even though she's a Samaritan woman. He honors her by implying that it's for her, even though she was an adulteress who'd had five husbands, a fact that Jesus knew very well. He honors her by treating her as a rational creature who would listen to his news and respond correctly. And in this way, he's actually honoring her above a bunch of other people he's already met, particularly the religious elite who responded to his gift irrationally with suspicion and violence instead of with joy. So this second statement, you would have asked him, really dignifies this woman. And another way it honors her is it waits for her move. She has to ask. There are three moves. God makes the first move and the third move. Um, first of all, he sends out his son as a gift. And finally, he seals the deal by granting eternal life. But the middle move belongs to the woman herself. She must ask. God will wait for her. He will not hurry her. He will not override her. She must ask. And in this too, Jesus honors her. And this honor becomes all the more striking when we realize just how dishonorable this woman was by every Jewish standard. If we think about the spectrum of honor and dishonor in their culture, right at the high end, right at the top, was the Jewish high priest, the most honorable person in their society, and he was honorable for being a man, a Jew, a Levite, a righteous person, and distinguished among his peers. And that puts this woman at the total opposite end of the spectrum, a woman, a Samaritan, a notorious sinner, and an outcast from her peers. We know historically that there was extreme bad blood between Jews and Samaritans in the first century AD. The Samaritans had recently caused a great offense to the Jews by dumping human bones on the floor of the temple in Jerusalem and desecrating it. The Jewish leaders held that sin unforgivable. And it was a major reason that, verse 9, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. We know also that this woman was a notorious sinner because of verse 18. You have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This was clearly a well-known fact all over town. It was most probably the reason that she was cast out by the other women of the town, excluded from their party, who all went up to the well in the early morning in the cool of the day for company and for security. Instead, this outcast woman labored up there alone at noon in the heat of the day. This woman 
Samaritan, sinner, outcast, is the one that Jesus comes to, the one that he honors. How like this is to beauty coming to the beast, the one who's hideous inside and out and loving and redeeming the beast. This is good news for us. This is deeply hopeful to all of us because we know that we are unlovely too. And unloveliness does not seem to be a problem for Jesus. The scene at the well is intimate. We find a man and a woman alone, and Jesus woos her. He puts a proposal on the table for her that's a bit like marriage. She will be loved, and he's come to change her life forever. So the third and final movement is, and he would give you. In verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So this third part of the verse is the promise of what's going to happen next, what Jesus will do for her next. Here Jesus speaks for himself. is really what I will do, but he speaks about himself in the third person. He says, you would ask him, and he would give you. So Jesus here is kind of acting a bit like his own ambassador. Imagine a president of one country going, sending out an ambassador to the president of another country. The ambassador is authorized to say, if you agree to these terms, here's what my president will do for you. In this case, it's kind of the statement Jesus is making. What will Jesus do for you? And what he says he will do is to give her the water that will mean she's never thirsty again. A spring of water welling up to eternal life. The two of them are meeting at a well, so water is the natural metaphor. The woman had been driven out of her home in the heat of the day because of her thirst, because of her need for water. And that thirst took her up to Jacob's well, which was itself a great gift from a great man. The patriarch Jacob had dug this well with his own hands. And all these centuries later, the town was still pulling its water from Jacob's well. It shows that it was a darn good well. No one had been able to dig a better one. In the hot desert landscape, it was in just the right spot to access the water table in a way that never ran dry, which made it a feat of both wisdom and engineering. Jacob, by all accounts of his life, was astoundingly strong, maybe as strong as half a dozen regular men. So perhaps the digging of this well was an act that could not have been repeated since. He had left behind a legacy of water in the desert a kind of living water in itself uh, for the benefit of many generations of his children. So the woman rightly marvels in verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And the answer to her question is, of course, yes. Jesus is greater than their father Jacob. So much greater that he can offer an altogether better kind of water, a water that makes the drinker herself into a new well, a spring of eternal life. He's so great that he can even elevate their religion, as he says in verse 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The man she meets at the well is very much greater than Jacob, and he declares that he has come from a heavenly Father who is seeking 
worshippers. Do you see that in verse 23? The Father is seeking such people to worship him. What kind of person is he seeking? A person who will worship in spirit and truth. As the theologians have pondered this phrase, they have come to understand that both of those words are bidirectional. Both spirit and truth work in both directions, from God to us and from us to God. So to worship in spirit means to worship in the power of the Holy Spirit of God after we have received rebirth in the Spirit of God. But also to worship in spirit means to worship with our whole spirits, opening our whole selves up to God. And to worship in truth, similarly, means to worship according to the truth of God as he has revealed himself in Jesus, but also to worship him truthfully, with integrity, to worship him with an honesty about who we really are. So spirit and truth in both directions. That's what God the Father is seeking. And that picture is very intimate, isn't it? It's another reason that this encounter feels a whole lot like a marriage proposal. Beauty coming to the beast. And it does mean everything to the beast. It means salvation and redemption and new life. But in this case, we see that the beauty wants it too. The father is seeking worshipers. He wants the marriage too. He wants to give us eternal life. So I hope we find this story very beautiful and moving. I hope we want to go over to the audiobook station and listen to it over and over again. Uh, most of us know something about what it's like to wait for this kind of encounter to happen in our lives. We can imagine just how lost and hopeless the Samaritan woman was before Jesus showed up at the well, how lonely and forsaken she was, how trapped in her hopeless existence. In the musical version of Beauty and the Beast, there's an additional song that didn't make it into the final cut of either of the movies, but it's a really beautiful and poignant song. Uh, it's a song that comes at the part of the story where Belle has just left the Beast's castle, and he doesn't expect to ever see her again. And he watches her leaving out of the window, and in the musical, he sings a song called If I Can't Love Her. And the words of the song are, and in my twisted face, there's not the slightest trace of anything that even hints of kindness. And from my tortured shape, no comfort, no escape, I see, but deep within is utter blindness. Hopeless, as my dream dies, as the time flies, love a lost illusion. Helpless, unforgiven, cold and driven to this sad conclusion. No beauty could move me, no goodness improve me, no power on earth if I can't love her. No spirit could win me, no hope left within me. How I could have loved her, and she could have set me free, but it's not to be. If I can't love her, let the world be done with me. It's a really beautiful song, and it perfectly articulates the despair of our souls if we are not rescued. How utterly forsaken we are if we are not redeemed. The pain of being hideous and unlovely and unloved, the misery we are left with if beauty does not come and save us. And people are looking for redemption in all kinds of places, aren't they? And so often it's in romantic relationships, but we have come to know the truth that the only lover of our souls is Jesus. 
our creator. And his is the only love that can redeem us. So are we in tune with this hunger of the human soul? Have we known it for ourselves and known it satisfied? And if so, will we seek out others who are still alone in their high castle, unredeemed? Because the Father is seeking worshipers. Will we join him in his search? And I know that many of you here are doing that and have been doing that for years. And what I want to leave you with today is John chapter 4, verse 10, as a tool and a model. The threefold shape that Jesus gave his invitation to the woman at the well, if you knew, you would ask and he would give. I've explained why this was such a kind and an honoring approach for Jesus to take. It was winsome and it turned out to be persuasive. And I think Jesus gave it to us for our instruction. What would it look like for us to follow this pattern? So probably it would come at a moment in our conversations with a friend, probably several weeks or months into the relationship, once trust is firmly established, when we perceive an openness and a felt need for change in our friend. And we might offer them the words of Jesus in this form, if you knew, you would ask and he would give. So perhaps then a friend is struggling to feel forgiven for something he or she did. And we might say to our friend, if you knew the incredible mercy of God, you would confess that to him, and he would forgive you and take that off your conscience forever. And we would know that was right, wouldn't we? We know God would do that. We can say that with total confidence because God has invited us to be his ambassadors too. We have heaven's own authority to say, God will forgive you if you ask him, with total confidence that it will be done, as we say. Or another example, perhaps our friend is struggling to believe, to have faith in the truth. We might say something like this. If you knew the gift of God and the peace that comes through believing, you would open your heart to God in total honesty, and he would show you the truth about himself. And he would do that. Or what about someone who's struggling with an addictive pattern of sin? Maybe if you knew the gift of God and the freedom that comes with holiness, you would hand that thing over to God for him to kill it, and he would treat you so gently. If you knew, you would act, and God would respond. It gives the friend a step to take, and it tells them what God will do in response. It's a very strong and winsome approach to help the people who are still waiting for beauty to show up in their lives. We all desperately need redemption. We were once beautiful and glorious creatures, but then we became corrupted and hideous on the inside, twisted by selfishness and sin and pride, and that in turn corrupted us on the outside so that we suffer and age and die. But beauty has come into the world to teach us a new way of love and heal us on the inside and make us new again so that in time the outside too might be redeemed and restored to its original glory and to eternal life. Hallelujah. Shouldn't have said that. So encourage one another with these words. Amen. <laughs>